God together, but let's come into His presence, not just His presence, but His Word, and open our hearts to His Word, because His Word, His Word is to be reverenced. Now, some of you grew up in churches where you didn't dare open this book, and you didn't dare write in this book, and, and, and because it was a sacred, the book, this book was sacred, all right? I, want, I don't want to shock you. This is not the Word of God. It's a book that contains the Word of God. This is a book. I mark it. It's got, this is my, well, this, I've been have, having this one for three and a half years. I'd won it for 20 years. It was yellow stains just from my fingers. It had marks all over the place. But then I went, when I started, became the senior pastor here, I went to the New King, King James Version. And so I'm in the process of doing that to this one. It's a book. It's to be marked up, it's, but it speaks to you. But it contains the Word of God. And so when we come to it, we need to also come to it, though, not for a reverence for the book that's sitting in your lap, but a reverence for the Word that it contains. This is God speaking to us. And in His Word is the power to cause to come about what He promises. In His Word is the revelation of who He is. And second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. But verse 10 says, But the Spirit has been given to us to reveal it. And the primary way that He reveals Himself to us is through His Word. So when we come to His Word, we need to come to it not with... Uh, you know, not bow down and kiss it, because some of you were raised with that, but an open, because people that bow down and kiss it then don't listen to it. God would rather have you listen to it and do it than kiss it. All right? Kissing is just an outward thing. It's the inner attitude of the heart. And the, uh, James chapter 1 says we're to receive with meekness the implanted Word. And that's what we're here tonight, to allow the Spirit of God to implant in our hearts His Word that will reveal things to us that God wants to reveal to us. So with that in mind, let's pray. Let's seek God to do that. Father, we come to you tonight based on the promises of your Word. And in your Word, you've promised us, Lord, that although our, there are things that our eyes have not seen, there's things that our ears have not heard nor have entered into our heart, you've given your Spirit to us to reveal these things to us. Your Word tells us that we can come and ask You to give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of You, and that You will open the eyes of our understanding that we will truly see the hope of Your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. And so tonight, Father, we ask You to do that. We trust and rely upon the anointing of Your Spirit to do that. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen. What we've been talking about started several weeks ago, and don't turn there because we'll get, we may get stuck back in that. But in the last verse of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which is talking about love and how the right motive for what we do for God has to be, has to be love, it ends with this verse that says, and after the, the gifts of the Spirit are going to pass away because they won't be needed when we, go, when we get to heaven. They won't be needed when Christ comes back because we'll see Him face to face. But there are three things that will remain, and they are faith, hope, and love. And it says, and the greatest of these is love. And that's true because that's God's nature. And we hear a lot about faith, and that's in the name of this church. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we're not diminishing faith in any way. Faith is critical. And, 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 and we talk a lot about love. Love is God's nature. And it is central to all that we do. You can do, and that's what it says in the beginning of that chapter. You can flow in the gifts of the Spirit. Miracles can be operating in your life. Great signs and wonders are happening. That's what was happening in the church in Corinth. But if, you don't, if you're not motivated by the love of God, in God's eyes, it counts as nothing. So that's very important. But one of those three we tend to neglect, and that's what we've been talking about, and that's hope. We don't hear a whole lot about hope, um, but the Bible says a, a whole lot about hope. And we've started by looking at, all right, why is it important for us to have an understanding of hope? Well, the first thing we saw is the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 6 that it's the anchor of our soul. And that especially as you're going through challenging times, and many of us are going through challenging times, your emotions can go up and down and all over the place. And we saw Paul was facing 
much more challenging circumstances than any of us will unlikely ever see, and yet Paul remained steady. He had emotions. We saw that at one point he despaired even of his life, but it didn't stop him. It didn't sidetrack him. It didn't, it didn't get him to quit. He finished his course, and the key words, he finished it with joy. And he tells us the secret. So we saw that hope is important because it says in Proverbs, there's a lot of things we could have looked at. Proverbs talks about uh, the fact that hope deferred causes a, a harm in your soul. It, it, it is a, a grieving in your soul when that hope is put off. When you, just, when you lose hope, you begin to pull inside. Your emotions begin to withdraw inside of you. So hope provides a stability and an anchor to the, to the part of our soul, which is our emotions. And then last week, what we looked at is, is that, uh, that hope, and this is what we're going to pick up again tonight, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Here we see two of these working together. In fact, if we went back into Hebrews, we could see two others working together because it says, faith works by love. Faith works by love, and here we see in Hebrews 11:1 1, that faith gives substance to things hoped for. Now, what we learned last week, that unless you have hope, your faith has nothing to add substance to it. So many of us are out there trying to walk in faith and build our faith up, but we have no hope for that faith to add substance to it. And we use the example, which isn't mine that I came up with it, but, but since God inspires all of it, He's the author of it, so I can borrow it. And that's the, the, the distinction between your, your furnace in your house and your thermostat. Your, firmers, your, ther- your furnace, if you, if you combine furnace and thermostat, it becomes a, a thermos. <laughs> your furnace provides the power to move your cold house in the morning up to whatever. We have a, well, it's the power to raise the temperature. But although the power's there to raise the temperature, it won't do anything unless you have a thermostat that tells you the temperature that you desire for the house to be at. Now, we got years ago, because I got tired of getting up an hour early, half an hour early and turning it up and then jumping back into bed, I got a programmable thermostat. So now, about a half an hour before we're going to get up, this thermostat comes on automatically, so when we get up, it's nice and toasty, because when we're sleeping, we like to have it cooled. It's also, you know, saves some money on the energy, but it also, I'd rather sleep in a cooler house. But when it's time to get up, I want it to be warm when we get up, and my wife especially wants it to be warm when we get up, because she doesn't like the cold at all. So this thermostat knows where we want the temperature in that house at any given point in the day. Why? Because I programmed it for what we want. And when that time hits 5.30, it tells the furnace you need to turn on and it keeps it running until it hits that temperature that we set in there. That thermostat is the hope and the furnace is the faith. And when you really think about it, what hope does is hope puts a picture out there of what you want to see happen and faith can't do that. All faith does is move with the power of God to produce what you're hoping for. But if you're not hoping for anything, all the power in the world can't, is maybe operating on your behalf, but it doesn't know what to produce. And we looked at the example of deciding to build a building, like this building when it was built. And I was, a, as a lawyer, I worked on many buildings and every building I ever worked on, they didn't start out with some general idea. They knew what they wanted to build. That, those drawings, those renderings were the hope of the owner of that property of what they wanted that building to be like. And so many of us, and then we ended up by saying, and that hope needs to be specific. That hope, it's not, well, I hope things get better. What is your, how can you give, your faith give substance to that? And so that's what we've looked at. And we could spend a lot of more time on that, and we'll get into some of the aspects of it. But what I want to begin to look at tonight is what is hope? And I didn't get into this at first because I wanted you to understand why it's important to study this and look at this together. 
So I want to begin to talk tonight about what hope is. In order to do that, I got to tell you what hope is not. And this is some of you who've been school of ministry will understand this process we're about to go through. If I were going to teach you, and I'm not competent to do that, if I were going to teach you some thermonuclear physics principle that none of you ever heard of, I could launch right into what it is. But the minute we start talking about something that you have some idea of, using a term that we're all used to using, the problem is in order for us to be on the same page about it, we have to unlearn what we already think. So when I mention the word hope, for every person that's in here, there's a slightly different idea of what we're talking about. And especially when it comes to hope, most of us are wrong. Because in our society, in our culture, we use this term hope, but it has a, a very different meaning than the Bible's meaning of hope, what the Bible means about hope. And generally, what we mean by hope in our culture, in our normal, normal vocabulary, is it's some general concept that, you know, uh, it, it might happen. I wish something's going to happen. So we use the word hope almost synonymously with wish. You know, do you, do, you, do, you, do you think the Red Sox are going to do better this year? I hope so. Now, that can mean everything from, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen, to, eh, I sure wish it happens. But that's not what the Bible means by hope. And if you don't understand that, when you read the scriptures about hope, we're going to interpret them through this watered-down understanding that we have of hope of how we know, but we use it very loosely. A lot of biblical terms we use very loosely because that's what our society does. The problem is when we bring the Word of God over into our lives and we start speaking the Word of God, we use the meaning that we've been trained in, not what the Bible says about it. So what I've learned to do is there's some of these words in my mind when I hear it or speak it, I I, I, I translate it in my mind in terms of what the Bible means by hope. So let me just give you a, some uh, a definition of it. Uh, so we have to unlearn some of the things that we've, we've already been programmed with. Okay. The Greek word hope is elpsis, E-L-P-I-S. And, and this is what Vine's expository dictionary says about it. That's basically the one I've been taught. It means a favorable or confident expectation. And there's where you see the difference. The way we typically mean hope is, I hope so, but there's not much confidence in that. It's the expression of a desire or some, some wish. But when the Bible, the word elpsis, the, word, the Greek word that's used for hope, is a word that means a confident, steadfast, persistent expectation. I'm expecting it to happen. So much so that if it doesn't, I'm disappointed, not just, oh, I'm disappointed again. I'm really disappointed because I don't know why it didn't happen. It's that strong. It's a confident, steadfast expectation. And here's another aspect of it. It's a favorable expectation. In other words, it's an ex expecting, it's a confident expecting of some favorable result. I'll say that over here because you're having trouble with this. It's a confident, and we'll draw this out, expectation of a favorable result. God wants us to have confidence when it comes to Him and His Word, and His promises. The whole book of 1 John is written that we might know that we're saved. God doesn't want you having doubt. Well, I don't know whether I'm saved or not. You need to get into your Bible, and you need to read what it has to say, and because God wants us to have confidence. Not in ourselves, but in Him, and in His Word, and in His promises. On the other hand, the devil wants us to not have confidence. So he'll peck at us to try to plant doubt. 
The word for doubt has a second meaning to it, the Greek word. And the second meaning is double-minded. So where James and several other places it talks about being double-minded, that word is also translated in places doubt, having two minds about the same thing. Yes, I'm in church, I feel good, I really know God loves me, and then I go out into back home, I get up Monday morning, and I don't know for sure whether God loves me, because I'm not feeling the same way I did when I was in church. I've got one mind when I'm up there, I wake up on Monday morning, and a different mind when I'm in church. That's double-minded. And anytime you have double-mindedness, you've now created a separation which allows Satan to move in there with his own ideas. There's some things you just need to establish because God says so. I remember when I first got saved, I went through that period that a lot of Christians go through. I don't know whether I'm saved or not. So I don't know. I guess it was the lawyer training. Because when I didn't know what to do about a case, I'd go to the law books and look what up they said. And that settled it. So this was the law book for me. This was the authority for me. And I asked God. I said, I don't know. Show me. And I just happened to be in the book of Ephesians. And it talks in the book of Ephesians that when, we're, when, when we come to Christ, we're sealed in Him by the Holy Spirit. And what I knew, that I knew this much. I knew that before that night when I received Christ, I was spending time in this Bible, but I couldn't understand it. Now, it's not because I wasn't educated. It's not because I couldn't read. I could understand the Internal Revenue Code. Then. I'm not sure I could now. <laughs> and if you really want a mental exercise, get a hold of a couple of those sections. Starts out with this principle, then it takes away three exceptions and adds an exception to an exception, and then there's, an, there's a parenthesis for the exception to the exception, and by the time you get three paragraphs down, you don't remember what the whole thing's about. But I could understand that, but I couldn't understand, I mean, I could read the words, but it didn't mean anything. The night I got saved, this book came alive to me. Suddenly, I got smart. <laughs> no, what it was, I realized is I now have the author living inside of me. And when I saw that, and I saw that when I had him in me, that was living proof, according to God's word, that I was born again and saved. I settled the issue that night. Now the devil's tried to bring doubt back to me before, but it's hard to get doubt through a closed mind, a closed door. Well, closed mind. My mind's closed about that issue. So I'm no longer double-minded, I'm single-minded, and because I'm single-minded, there's no opening for him to get the doubt in. Do you ever, I was, <laughs> I, I, well, I love Christmas time, my love, wife loves Christmas time, and I, I'm learning to get more into it than I used to be, I really enjoy it now. And in fact, this year, I kind of, well, I'm not sure I did all of it, but, but I, Monday, I decided, it was a Monday, yeah, to put the outside decorations out. And we have one of these, these um, deer that you put out with the lights on it like that. And, you know, and of course, you put it away last year, and I brought it out this year, and only half the lights work. <laughs> and I look at the box and said, this is one of those strings that if one goes out, they won't all go out, but they're half out. So I'm figuring out how to do this. So I decided, well, I've got some good that are good. I'll just start testing them. Whoever designed those little lights and how they go in that socket was sadistic. I can tell some of you tried to change them. I'm already, I, I, it's late in the afternoon, I'm trying to get this thing done. I'm looking at all the ones that are out that I'm going to have to check. Because I bought an extra string last year, half of them are out. So I'm getting in there trying, this is my point, I'm trying to pull this light, little tiny plastic thing out without ripping my nail out. And what I've got to do is, the moment, I, when I finally got a little bit of an opening, here's what happened. 
I got something in there and began to work in that opening. And the more I worked in that opening, the larger the gap got, and eventually I could pull it out. And that's what Satan wants to do with us. He wants to get in with a little bit of doubt and begin to work on that doubt. Because the more of an opening he can get, the more room he has to work until he can get you double-minded. See, our minds are, well, I need to understand this. I need to figure this out. Yes, there are some things we need to understand. There are some things we need to figure out. But there are some things we don't need to understand. And there are some things we don't need to figure out. Proverbs 3, 4, and 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's what we are to do. Lean not to your own understanding. We're talking about the things of God now. Not talking about how to fix the electric lights on your deer that's out front. We're talking about the things of God. He wants us to trust Him, first of all, with all our heart. He may give us a wisdom. I never planned to get off on this tonight, but this is where we're going to go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 basically says that. It says the Greeks, the Jews seek a sign. They want to see miracles. They want to see some outward evidence that God's real and that God's working. The Greeks want to hear, see wisdom because they want to understand it before they'll accept it. But he goes on to say, but you believed. Now, what is it you understand with? We understand things with our mind. What is it you believe with? Our heart. What does God say we're to do? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. That doesn't mean we can't understand things. What it means is we can't rely on our understanding before we're going to trust. We've got to trust Him first. He may give us understanding. But when we try to understand the things of God before we'll do them, we're running counter to what God has ordained and provided for us. And do you understand? He knows better than we do what works. So 1 Corinthians says, the Jews seek miracles and signs to, to, to trust, and the Greeks want wisdom, but you have believed. Chapter 2 then goes on to say, but for us that believe and who are mature, there is a wisdom that God will give us. So once you've believed, once you've trusted, now God will give you understanding, but he doesn't want us to follow him and obey him because we understand. He wants wants us to follow Him and obey Him because we trust Him. Once we trust Him, He can trust us with the understanding because we're not going to rely on our understanding, which is what Eve did. But we're going to trust Him, which is what God had told them to do. Then He goes on to say, and in all your ways, acknowledge Him. The word acknowledge just means recognize that He's involved in it with you. Recognize what He's doing for you in that situation. And look at what the promise is. And then, once you trust Him with all your heart, once you don't rely on your understanding, once you acknowledge Him, include Him, talk to Him, acknowledge Him in all your ways, then He will direct your steps. That's His promise. I don't give you hope. See how it fits in here? <laughs> Praise God. Where was I? Oh, confident expectation. So when the Bible talks about hope, the promises, the scriptures we're going to look at is God wants us confident. He doesn't want us wondering. He doesn't want us doubting. In fact, if you go back, and I was in college, I, was, I, I majored in philosophy. I wasn't saved. I was just trying to find out how other people decided to live their lives. And I came to the end of four years of study and decided to figure out they didn't know what they were talking about. 
This, now I knew I, that they didn't know what they're talking about. And, and so, uh, it, but one, one of the things I learned is that this age that we're in, called the age, the age of reason and all the scientific domination of things, started when man began to question. Now, there's some things it's okay to question. But man began to lift up his ability to understand things that God did not intend us to understand by our own understanding. They are only things you can understand by His revelation. And when man tries to elevate himself to the level of God's understanding about things by his own ability, he's exalting himself like the Most High, which is what Lucifer did. So guess who's behind that one? And all that understanding doesn't build confidence. It builds cockiness and arrogance. And so God wants us to be confident, not wondering, I don't know, I hope this is going to work. That's not what God wants at all. And so hope is to provide for us, the purpose of hope is to give us a confident, steadfast, sure, positive, good expectation of things that haven't happened yet. And then once we have that, our faith now can begin to operate towards bringing that about in, the, in, the, in this realm that we live in all the time. So that's what it's about. So faith, faith gives substance to things hoped for. Now the rest of that is it is the evidence of things not seen. And that's the part of hope we're going to look at tonight. It's the evidence of things that are not seen. Now, in the Greek language in that verse, the word things is a word that means something that exists now. So what that's actually saying is faith gives substance to things hoped for. There's no word things in there. It is the evidence of things that exist but they're not seen. And we talked last time about the fact that there's two realms of existence. There's the spiritual realm that is more real than this natural realm, but you can't, this is important to understand, you can't see it with your eyes. Because we're used to determining whether something exists by whether one or more of our five senses can detect it. And the only place our five senses are reliable in detecting things are for things that exist in this realm. But just because it doesn't exist in this realm doesn't mean it doesn't exist. God doesn't exist in this realm. But God certainly exists. Angels don't exist in this realm, but angels certainly exist. Your salvation doesn't exist in this realm, but your salvation certainly exists. Heaven doesn't exist in this realm, but heaven certainly exists. So the Bible teaches us about things that exist that we can't sense with our senses, but the problem is because we can't detect them with our senses because the way the world functions and the way most of the church functions, we don't believe it really exists. Or what we do is where so much of the church is, is we have the church's idea of what exists, while we're here in church. And then when we leave church, we go into the real world. And that's the attitude that so much of our young people have, but it's, where did they get it from? They got it from, from the older generations. They watch how we live our life. We say and do one thing in church and do something very different outside of church in terms of what we just believe is going to happen. So we talk one way in church. I'm all over the place tonight, but that's okay. We talk one way in church, like, bless God, praise God, good to see you. Yes, God's, I'm blessed. I'm, you know, we get out, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm like, you know, I'm going to go. Oh, my goodness. Well, our kids hear that. So we've taught them, yes, there's the church world. And in church, it's real. But then the real world's out here because that's where we spend most of our time. And what the Word of God tells us is, there's no difference. There's no imaginary world and, and no real world. And see, that's what happens. That's one of the dangers, and I don't want to get off into this. And if I, if I get you upset with your pet series of movies, 
That's okay. That's one of the dangers of those things like Harry Potter series. Well, it's harmless, it's fantasizing. No, it's creating the impression that there's a fantasy world out there. And the problem is we bring that over into the, into, into the, into the spirit realm and see that as a fantasy world also. And the spirit realm is more real than this natural material realm. And so in Hebrews 11.1, 1, when it says, it is, it is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That word things means there are things that actually exist that you can't see with your eyes. Or, and and when, in these scriptures we're going to go through, the word see doesn't just refer to your eyes. It means that anything your senses can detect. All right, go with me to Romans chapter 8. If I could have only one book of the Bible, it would be the, you're gonna f- it would be the book of Ephesians. Because it really contains the, f- the wholeness of the gospel, at least in its core. But if I could have only, had to have only one chapter, it would be Romans chapter 8. But this is a part we don't spend much time on very often. Let's start in verse... Um, 23. But before he gets to 23, what he's talked about here, just verses 1 through verse uh, 17 basically says that there's no condemnation for us that are in Christ. And the reason is what we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us, sending Christ to die for us. And the way he did it was to put his spirit within us. That's what verse 2 says. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. God's life is now in me and that life has made me free from the law because I'm alive, not because I've, come, I've obeyed the law. I'm alive because he's put his spirit in me. So the theme really through verse 1 through verse 17 is that the Holy Spirit, God through the Holy Spirit has done for you what you could not do for yourself because of the weakness of your flesh. And that's really a continuation of what he's talking about here. Because then he says, and what he's ultimately made us is to be joined ears with Christ. And then he says, if we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. Then he goes on in verse 8 to talk about the sufferings of this world. He's not talking about sickness and disease. He's talking about the struggle against sin. Back in Genesis 3, we've been talking about that on Sunday mornings, was re- what was released by Adam's sin was a curse in the world. And God said to Adam, now this ground that you're still charged with overseeing, you're still charged with tending, you're still charged with weeding, you're still charged with that responsibility, it's now going to fight you. The earth is now going to fight you. Well, we now have 4,000 plus years of sin accumulating and the eruptions that are in the world today is all a result of the earth literally groaning. The world's groaning because of sin. I've had to deal over the last few days or so with situations which I just, I mean, I don't even get into it because, you know, I was raised in a pretty sheltered life. And most of us, if not all of us, but most of us here have lived somewhat sheltered. But there's some horrible horrible things going on out there that people are doing to one another and that adults are doing to children, which is, oh, I just don't even think about some of it. And you get angry until you realize, but it's sin manifested. It's evil let loose on the earth. The devil does not play fair. We get this image, well, that's not fair. Where is it written the devil plays fair? The Bible says he doesn't play fair. We're in a warfare. We're not in a game, a child's game out in the, in, you know, out in the play yard. We're not in, a, we're not in a, 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 a child's game out in an elementary school playground. We're in a war. And the enemy's not playing fair. So he's talking here about the world's groaning. And he said, and, and the result is 
being right, made righteous, being God's children in a world like this causes us to suffer. It's just, I don't want to look at the newspaper. I don't want to hear the news anymore because it's like, where is this going to end? It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I could now understand why some Christians that I saw years ago when I was younger and they were about my age saying, I just want to get out of here. And I'm getting to a point where just, but I know I can't because I've got an assignment here. But I can begin to understand that. That's what he's talking about here. The groanings. And then he talks about the groanings that we have within ourselves to, to put, get our redeemed body. You know you're going to get a new body that isn't going to give you any trouble like this one does. I mean, you've got you to clean it up, dress it up, fix it up, rest it, feed it. And then you've got to turn around and do it again all over tomorrow. And, and the only avenue sin has into your life is through that body. And if you ever get to the point, I'm just tired of, you know, sometimes you wonder, you know, you watch, you can't even turn, you got to turn the TV off. Especially in the summertime, you get out in the streets, you can't even look, you know, because people don't wear clothes very much anymore. And it's like, you know, it's just, oh my goodness, you know, it gets so overwhelming sometimes. And, but the only avenue is that it's through our body. You're going to get a new one that doesn't have to deal with that anymore. And he's touched, he says, we groan within us for that day. That's what he's been talking about. Okay, that's the background here. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. That's what we've been talking about. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why? eagerly waiting for the adoption, the revel, the redemption of our bodies. So we're waiting for something that hasn't come yet. And here's what we're going to get to. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees. Now there was a day and age when I didn't have an iPhone. I had one of those flip phones. And I saw them, I saw people having them, I saw some of our kids have them. And I decided, you know what, I kind of like one of those. And then I began to go to the store and look at it. I'm a gadget guy. I'm a, I, I like electronics, I like gadgets, I like to figure them out and play with them. I'm normal. My wife has other terms for it. And, you know, and, and then that, that, that began to grow into more than that. It began to grow into a hope. Oh, I'd hope to have one someday. Well, guess what? This is my iPhone. I don't hope for it anymore. Why don't I hope for it? Because I have it. I can see it. I can touch it. So what Paul's saying here is hope is only necessary for things that are not yet manifest in this realm that I can touch and that I can see. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about that hope. We're going to talk down the road a little bit about this. He's talking about the hope that someday I won't have to put up with this thing, this body. Someday I'm going to get a body that's redeemed, that doesn't give me trouble, it doesn't, it, you know, it's not tempted with evil. It's not tempted to do things it doesn't want. not tempted to eat things it shouldn't eat. It just, it does what it's supposed to do. It doesn't, you know, doesn't give me trouble. He said, but I don't have that yet. So therefore I hope for it. But I don't hope for things that I have. And by have, I mean in the natural senses. Because I have them, I don't have to hope for them. So what we see here is hope means that hope is for things that we don't yet detect in this realm with our senses. Hope is future-oriented. Hope is for what we will have in this realm, but we don't have in this realm yet. Hope is that when I get out of bed because that thermostat was set, it's going to be 68 degrees, not 58 degrees. Now, when the thermostat, before it kicks on, it is 58 degrees out there. But the hope is between 
5.30 and 6 o'clock, it will gut up to 68 degrees. So hope is future-oriented. And we tend to be in our thinking, well, because it's in the future, it's not important. But that's how the future gets to the present. And this is what's lacking in so many of our walk with God. We're, we're, we're thinking about, talking about, looking at where we are now and what we have now. Instead of, it's, we need to acknowledge where we are now, but, it, but beginning to look for the future and where God wants us to get to. What you think about, what you talk about, what you see on the inside is what you're going to have in the future. So if all you think about and all you talk about and all you look at is where you are now, guess what? Where you are now is where you'll be in the future. What you have now is what you'll have in the future because you put your hope on what you have now. And that isn't hope. So there's nothing for your faith to add substance to because you don't have hope. I don't mean you're hopeless. You've not set your hope on something. That's like getting up at 5.30 in the morning, going over, looking at the temperature on the thermostat, and it says 58 degrees, and so I set the thermostat for 58 degrees. <laughs> and then I get out of bed at 6 and wonder why it's still cold. Because I didn't set the goal for 68, I left it where it was. Where do you want to be in a year? Let me ask it a different way. Where does God want you to be in a year? Well, He's God. He can do what He wants. No, He can't. Oh, He can. But He did what He wanted. He put this realm in our hands. That's what He wanted to do. That's what He did. So it's up to us, just like it was up to Adam. He put the garden in Adam's hands, Adam's responsibility. And why didn't he keep the devil out? Because he delegated the responsibility for this realm to Adam. It was Adam's job to keep him out. First Peter says, resist the devil. He doesn't say, God, oh, God will resist the devil for you. You resist the devil and you'll flee. We have a part to play. God can't, he will not step across that boundary because he delegated it to us. So does this mean God's not sovereign? God is sovereign, but the sovereign God, out of an act of his sovereignty, delegated it to us. So he's still sovereign. Not taking the sovereignty away of God. He exercised his sovereignty. He says, now it's in your hands. I'll back you up. Whatsoever things you bind on earth, I'll back them up in heaven. Whatsoever things you loose on earth, I'll back you up in heaven. But you got to do the binding. you got to do the loosening. I'll back you up. So there's things God wants done. But just because he wants them done doesn't mean they'll happen. He's got a birth in us, a vision, a hope, a blueprint, a thermostat setting for what he wants. And then we have to exercise our faith to do it. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Excuse me. Yes, Second Corinthians chapter 4. I can tell when I get excited I can't find it. <laughs> now, Paul in this section has just talked about some of the difficulties he's gone through. Because in verse 8 he says, We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed. That means he didn't know what to do. You ever think about that? Paul got perplexed. I saw that one day. I said, what? I mean, many years as I've read these scriptures, it hit me. 
He says, we're perplexed. That means he didn't know what to do, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always caring about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. We who live are always being delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that death is working us, but life in you. We have the same spirit of faith according which is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. We, shall all, we also believe, therefore we speak. Look at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. This hope was an anchor to his soul. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. The outward man is the part he could see. The inward man, the spirit man, is the part he can't see. The outward man belongs to which realm of existence? This material, natural realm of existence. The inner man, the spirit man, belongs to the spirit realm. So the spirit realm is getting stronger while the outer man is getting older. You do know your body is getting older. I mean, we can do things to slow it down, but it's still getting older. Just look at an old picture of yourself. Okay, we'll move on from that. We do not lose heart, even though that's happening. It's amazing how many people I thought, oh, I'm getting old, I'm starting to ache, I'm getting old. I used to do that, and God's corrected me. That means I don't deny my age, but I'm not to dwell on this outer man. I need to take care of it, treat it right, because it's the temple of the Holy Ghost, but not dwell, oh, I'm getting old. I'm not getting old. My body's gotten older. There's some things my body can't do as well as it used to do, or as fast as it used to do, or as long as it used to do, but I'm not getting older, because I'm not my body. That's like saying your, you know, your car's now 10 years old. It's, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't look the way it did when you bought it, but that's not you. You're the one that's sitting in the car. You don't say, I'm getting rusty. It's your car that's getting rusty. Right? All your body is, is the car you get around in this realm in. It's your earth suit. It's not you. So Paul learned this distinction. He says, oh, the outer man is perishing. The inner man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us in far exceeding internal weight of glory. This is what I want you to see, verse 18. For a while we look not at the things that are seen. Things that are seen are in this realm. So we don't, it doesn't mean, now when you drive home, look at the things that are seen through your windshield. He's talking about the things of God, not the traffic on 95 and 195. So while he looked not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Hope is looking at the things that are not seen. And so kind of in this image we've done here, down on this stage is the material realm. This is the things that are seen. This is the pulpit. This is the, the floor like this. Up there, let's say, is the spirit realm. It's real. That pulpit's real. This pulpit, but, but that's in the spirit realm. This pulpit is by faith. And so what he's saying is, I learn while I'm going through this life to look at that realm to give me hope to operate in this realm. So we walk by things, we, we look at things. How can you look at things that aren't seen? You cannot look at things that are seen by closing your eyes. But you, the only way you can look at things that can't be seen is by faith. But the things that can't be seen are the hope. That's the picture that we've been talking about. Now let's very quickly go, and we'll just start this. Let's go over to Genesis 15. We talked about this last week, briefly. Because we just made this point, and this is a good example of this, how God has to work this way. Genesis 15. God's calling Abraham. He wants to start a people through Abraham that are going to have a covenant relationship with him that God wants to use that covenant relationship to be a witness to the world of what he's like. 
but he started with a man who didn't believe in him. So often, when God wants to do his thing, he starts fresh. And he'll often pick people that don't know how to do what they're doing. Because that way they have to rely on God and not on what they know. And that's what he's doing here. Abraham was a moon worshiper. And, and God says, I'm in, I, want to, I want to be your shield, your exceeding great reward. We talked, oh, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we talked about it last week. And he says, you know, well, what am I going to get out of this since I don't have any children? I don't have a child and my only heir right now, and I'm too old. The only heir in my household is Eleazar, a servant. And so God, instead of answering, says, well, I'm going to give you Isaac. says, come here. Remember last week I laid down up here? He says, and he got, gets him looking at this. He gets him looking. He gets him looking at an image that's far bigger than what Abraham is, is trying to imagine. Abraham can't even imagine a son, and God's got him out there lost in the number of the stars. And when his senses begin to get full of it, now God speaks and says, what your senses are full of right now gives you a taste of the number of the descendants that I want to bring about through you. But God had to get Abraham to hook up his hope with the image, the blueprint, the thermostat setting that God needed him to do in order to do what God wanted. Because then Abraham begins to believe God and then God's able to work through him. Let's look at another quick example. Joshua chapter 5. God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt into the promised land. For reasons we're not going to get into tonight, God says, Moses, you can't enter the promised land. The old generation has to die off. The new generation has now been raised in the wilderness. Joshua has been appointed to lead them in. They now cross the Red Sea, across the, the Jordan River, and they're ready. They're, there's, the first thing they run into is an obstacle, and it's the city of Jericho. We're going to start in verse 13. And they're sitting up, an army's sitting outside, camped, waiting to get instructions for what to do. This is often what happens. God's called you to do something. You get there, and the first thing you run to is there's an overwhelming obstacle. And Joshua doesn't know what to do. Now, he's been trained in battle. And so he's just sitting out there probably pondering this. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are, are you, he said to him, Are you for us or are you for ever? I don't know who you are. Whose side are you on here? Verse 14, so he said, this is the angel, no, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? See, Joshua's not trying to tell God what he wants done. He's asking him, what do you want? This is also where we miss it. Verse 15, and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your foot, for the place where you now stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now this is all a continuation. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel, and none went in and none went out. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, look at the next word. What is it? What is it? What is it? See, I have given Jericho into your hands. But verse 1 says, it was all shut up. Now, you may not understand this unless you've heard this taught before. But the archaeologists have unearthed parts of Jericho's wall. And they say it was so wide, they used to have chariot races on the top of it. Six chariots wide. So this is not, you know, a thin wall you can be pushed down. It's a mighty fortress, and there's no way, the, the, the Israel army has no way in the natural of getting through, but they know this is where God wants them to go, so he stops. He doesn't know what to do. God sends an angel, and what's the first thing the angel says to him? See. See. They have no hope of, change, of the city, taking the city. So what's the angel see? See. Now notice what he says to see. See. I have given... Jericho into your hand. It's kings and it's mighty men of valor. I want you to see it's been given to you. While he's sitting there, 
Well, actually, he's lying down, worshiping. The city's all locked up. It's still in the possession of the king of Jericho. Their army's still in. It's still strong. The walls all shut up. Nobody can get in and out. And the messenger of God is saying, here's what you've got to do. You've got to see. You've got to see. Not with these eyes, but with these eyes. You've got to see. Not I will give you the city, but see that I already have given you the city. Now, God wants them to take the city. That's God's will. He can't just knock these walls down. He needs Joshua and he needs the people of Israel to do their part. And that's going to be to operate in faith, to do the instructions, to march around the city. But they're not going to march around the city unless they've seen it's going to produce something. So the seeing is their hope that now their faith can give substance to and once their faith begins to operate and give substance to seeing that city given to them, now God can work His power to do His will. So God wants to accomplish a result just like He did through Abraham to produce a multitude of nations. God wants to deliver Israel, that city, into their hands but God needs them to take it. They can't take it in their strength. He doesn't want them to take it in their strength, but he needs them to do their part. Their part requires them, first of all, to see something that their natural eyes can't see. But what he tells them to see is what he sees, not what they decide they want to see. So we've got to make sure that what our hope is is what he wants us to see. Not just what we pick. Because otherwise you won't have faith. Because the faith is when you know God's promised you what you can already see. Everybody following me so far? Yes. So the first thing this angel says is you've got to see it that I have given to you. Now we won't take the time to turn there, but if you go to Genesis 11, you'll see the opposite of this. It says, at that time, the peoples of the earth were all of one language. And they came together of one purpose. And they had a plan that they were going to build a tower into heaven by their own efforts, by their own plan. And God comes down and says, I've got to do something here. So what he does is he confuses their language so they can no longer communicate with each other. So they get into disagreement. In the King James, it says, because... If I don't do this, and the King James says, whatever they imagine, they will do. So because of the power of a hope that wasn't even God's plan for them, God had to come down and frustrate that hope by confusing their communication with each other. Now think about that. That hope is so powerful that God said, I've got to come down and I've got to break it up because if I don't, they're going to act on that hope and whatever they're hoping, they will accomplish even though it's not my will. That's being done every day out in that world. There are people that are using this principle every day. They're visualizing things. There's a whole teaching out there on how to visualize things. You ever watch these golfers on TV? There's, there's the greens down there. They don't just stand up and hit it. They stand back here. And they look. You know what they're doing? They're imagining that shot where it's going to go. They're picturing that shot. They're developing an image of that shot in their mind. They're creating a hope, a positive, confident expectation. I heard one of them interview. He says, teaching young people, young golfers. He said, when, if you ever hit a bad shot, and they do too. Oh, it's always reassuring. Hit a bad shot. He said, I will not go and hit another shot until in my mind, I have replayed that shot the correct way. I don't remember how many times. Because I will not get up and hit the next ball with that memory in my mind. That's how powerful this is. 
and they're not doing the will of God necessarily. So this works. Well, next week we'll get into a little more about what this imagination is. We'll talk more about it and give you, then we'll begin to get into how to develop it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Father, that you fill us, you prepare for us, you call us, Father, to a, a great and glorious hope. You are a God of hope. And wherever it is that we may be going through in our life right now, as hopeless as we may feel, there is hope. Because you have a plan, you have a way for us to go through this situation and to come out the other side. Father, as we read your word, we see that the Apostle Paul and many others also went through difficult times. But they learned the secret of regardless of what was going on in their life, to never let go of their hope. Help us to see and understand, Father, that you need us to have hope and that that hope is a confident, positive expectation of good coming about because that is what your will is for our lives. We thank you that not only are you the God of all comfort, but you are a God of hope. We ask you to open the eyes of our understanding to see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.